Church, I invite you right now, just be still. Be still. And repeat this statement. Father God, you, you are the only one who can. Father, you are the only one who could raise Jesus back to life. You are the only one who can turn death into life, and you're the only one who continues to do it every day. Because of that, we love you, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, everybody. As you can tell, Rick, is, he's here. You saw him already, but he is not delivering the sermon today. He's taking a well-deserved weekend off from delivering a sermon. I think for the past almost six months, I think, every weekend, he's been up here delivering a message. And you can tell I'm wearing a shirt right now that says, thankful. And I'm wearing it to remind myself to continue to practice that discipline of gratitude. And one of the things that I'm grateful for in this season is that every weekend, me, along with the rest of you, so many of us, we've had the opportunity to listen to Rick's voice, a voice of wisdom, of compassion, of discernment in an otherwise chaotic season. And so very thankful for that. Now, today, we're still in our mindset series. And as we begin, I I want us to go back. I want us to go back about 70 years Uh, April 23rd, 1951. Now, at this point in our nation's history, our school systems, they're still segregated. So we're in Farmville, Virginia, Moton High School. It's an all-black school, and the facilities are falling apart. They're dilapidated. It's it's in rough shape. In that same town, on the other side of town, an all-white school, much better conditions. Enter... 16-year-old Barbara Johns. She's a student at the all-black school. She reaches a point, she says, this is enough. This has got to stop. Something's got to give. And so she steps in, and she, she tricks her principal into leaving his office, telling him that there was an issue downtown with fellow students that he needed to go take care of. And after he left, she goes into his office, she takes some of his stationery, and she forges a letter using his signature and gives it to all of the teachers that told them, hey, take all of, your, all of your classes, all of your students to the gym for an assembly, and whenever you take them there, leave. So the entire student body, no teachers, no administrators, they're in the gym. And 16-year-old Barbara Johns, she steps up, shows incredible leadership for her age, and she mobilizes the entire student body to where they, com- they all leave the school, they march downtown to the courthouse, protesting, demanding that their conditions be recognized, demanding that people pay attention to the inequality in the school systems. Now, her victory, it wasn't won that day. Nobody was really paying attention locally, but but state leaders, they start to notice. The NAACP, they start to notice. And they step in and begin to work with Barbara and fellow students. And what they do is they take her case and they lump it with a few other cases and they create one big case that goes before the Supreme Court. And in May of 1954, the landmark case that we now know is Brown versus the Board of Education, the judgment was rendered that segregation in schools was unconstitutional. Now, even though that case centered around the story of Oliver Brown, because 16-year-old Barbara Johns, her ability to completely mobilize an entire school has led a lot of people to look at her as though she was one of the primary catalysts for the civil rights movement. So I want you you to think about that. A 16-year-old girl, someone who in that context was viewed as powerless, not worth paying attention to, invisible even, 
And she completely changes our world and how we view each other. A long three-year journey. A journey where she no doubt experienced a lot of persecution, yet she perseveres. Why? One word. Determination. Let's pray. Father God, we, we thank you that life persists, that life perseveres because of the determination of your spirit moving through all of us, that the determination that, that brought creation into being is the same determination that resides within us. So Father, teach us today what it means to follow after you, to be consistent in following you, to be anchored in you, to be determined to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. So today we're going to be in the Hebrew side of our scriptures. When I, when I think about the, the mindset of determination, one of the first people that I think about in the Bible is Daniel. So we're going to be in Daniel. If you, if you open up your Bible right at the halfway point and you go just to the right a little bit, you're going to be in the book of Daniel. Now, as you're, as you're doing that, I want, you to, I want you to look back over the past few months and ask yourself, like, how have you done during this season? Did you, did you grow stronger during the season? Did you learn a new skill? Did you learn a new language? <laughs> how many of you during the season grew a ridiculous mustache? I know a guy. <laughs> but how did you do? How did you do with your New Year's goals? Did, uh, did you stay with your New Year's goals through the season? Or did they get put on hold? So take a moment. I want you to ask yourself... On a scale from 1 to 10, how determined are you? How dedicated to your goals are you? How tenacious are you? How consistent are you? When I think about Daniel on this scale, he's a 10. He's, Daniel's tenacious to the point of death. He's consistent. He's anchored. But here's where it begins with Daniel. Daniel is determined because he has a meaningful purpose. You see, some of us, we've given up on our dreams during the season or our goals, not because we like determination, but because the season, it's, it's shown us that our goals, well, they, they didn't really matter that much to begin with. Daniel, his purpose is this, to serve God in all circumstances, no matter what, to be a prophet to the people for the voice of God, regardless the cost. Now, I want you to take a look at a, a graph, just a quick helicopter view about where we are by the time we get to the book of Daniel. So back to 1500 BC, this is the time of Moses, the time of the Exodus where Moses leads the Hebrew nation out of slavery, out of Egypt, headed towards the promised land. 500 years later, 1000 BC, this is the pinnacle of, uh, of the Israel nation, the Hebrew nation. This is where the world views Israel as a defined nation with the home, King David, temples coming. And then about 400 years later, this is when it all completely falls apart. It's 587 B.C. when the Hebrews are conquered by the Babylonians. The temple in Jerusalem is burned down, and every part of their history is destroyed. And all but the poorest of the poor are sent into exile, into Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar is the Babylonian king. This is where we are by the time we get to Daniel. So there in chapter 1, after the king completely destroys Jerusalem and the temple, after the people, Hebrew people are sent into exile, 
the king, he has his chief eunuch can select a few Hebrews for a special assignment. I want to pick up there at verse 3. It says, Then the king commanded Asphenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, used without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. So this is where Daniel is. He's from the nobility of the Hebrew people. He's educated. He's in good health. And he and his friends, they find themselves in a unique situation. They are in the company of the king who's responsible for completely destroying their homes and killing their families. And to add insult to injury, the king renames them. I mean, this is, this is the ultimate picture in subjugation. The king is saying, okay, so you were given this name at birth by your parents, and you've been called this name for your whole life. Not anymore. From now on, this is your name. And this will be a reminder that I own you. You get the picture. But the story continues, and this is where we start to get an idea of just how determined Daniel is to stay with his purpose. You remember what that was? Serve God, all circumstances, no matter what. Verse 8 Daniel refuses the food and the wine that the king offered him. It says he would not defile himself. What's going on here? I mean, is, this, is it simply just a matter of Hebrew law that his, his religion wouldn't allow him to eat the food that was provided? I think there's more going on than that. But before we get to that, I want you, I want you to take a moment and I want you to put yourself in Daniel's shoes. Your entire way of life, it's been destroyed. The future, it's about as uncertain as it's ever been. And you're in the company of the people who are responsible for this. They hold the power in your world. Now, sure, you're going to be upset with them. But if you know anything about networking, about leveraging relationships for your benefit, this is the moment you're looking for, to be in the inside track, to be in the know, to be with the who's who of the Babylonians. And you've probably already figured out how to legitimize becoming friends with the enemy because it's about survival, right? Survive today. Live to serve God another day. That makes sense, right? What about Daniel? What does he do? Does, does he adjust his outlook for just a moment in order to survive the Babylonian world? No. Here he is, handpicked by the king to be at the king's table, to eat the king's feast, to eat his food, to be educated by his teachers. All Daniel has to do is to enjoy the privileges sent his way and keep his mouth shut. But he doesn't do that. Why? Because he's determined to stay with his purpose, to serve God in all circumstances, no matter what. In your notes, number one, a determined person remains faithful to their unwavering principles. 
So how faithful are you to your principles? Are you like Daniel who never backs away from what you know is right? Or are your principles, are they sort of on a sliding scale, kind of just subject to the situation? Now, some of you might remember this company. This company was about 20 years ago, the company of Enron. Now, they've become the poster child for corporate greed with zero business ethics. They went from being a multi-billion dollar company, at least, at least on paper, to declaring bankruptcy in about a, about a month. And right before it all imploded, the executives, they know it's a sinking ship. You know what they do? They, they get up in front of all of their employees and they tell their employees, they say, hey, Enron is a company built for the future. It's in great shape. Take all of your money that's invested in other places and invest it into Enron stock because it's going to pay off for you. They know it's tanking and they're still selling it to their employees. And while they're selling it to their employees, you know what they're doing with their own stock? They're getting rid of it. They're unloading it. It's as if the, the executives are standing here and they see a bullet coming right at them and they, they, they grab their employees and they say, here, stand here for a minute. I mean, it's, it's about as shady as, as they come. But here's the thing. They, they didn't get there overnight. You see, early on in Enron's history, they had, they had a couple of rogue employees that, that did some questionable things. In, in Enron, they had a decision to make early on. How were they going to deal with these employees with poor business ethics? Would they fire them? No. They rewarded them. Why? Because they made the company money, and that was their God. I mean, and every time, it just became easier and easier to do that same wrong thing again and again and again. What's, what's been the common thread throughout this series? My life is moving in the direction of my strongest thoughts. And every time I think something, it becomes easier to have that same thought again and those, as those, those pathways, those, those uh, grooves get worked into my brain. And every time I sacrifice my principles just for a little bit, that groove, that pathway is worked into my brain. It becomes easier to walk down that path again and again and again. So if you're just graduating high school, I want to give you a piece of advice that I wish somebody would have given me when I was in my late teens, early 20s, and that's this. A person of true character does not allow external circumstances to dictate their internal moral compass. I want you to write that down. It's not in your notes. So I want to say it again. A person of true character does not allow external circumstances to dictate their internal moral compass. You see, Daniel, despite being imprisoned by the Babylonians, he remains faithful to his unwavering principles, regardless. But I mean, it's, it's just food, right? Like, what's the big deal? What's the big deal if Daniel eats the feast that the king provides for him? I mean, he's got to eat anyway. How does eating this feast make him sacrifice his principles? Here's why. If you read through the Old Testament, any time a king throws a feast, he's celebrating something. So what do you suppose the Babylonians are celebrating at this 
point. Maybe they're celebrating the destruction of the Hebrew nation. Where did the food come from? Chances are it came from the spoils of the war with the Hebrew people. So you see, it's not just a meal for Daniel. The meal he's looking at, it represents the defeat of his people. While he's staring at this table, the rest of his people have been sent packing. Some killed, some left for dead. Most are starving. See, it's not just food for Daniel. It's a matter of principle. So what are your principles? What are the things that you stand for? What are the things that, you, that you're not going to sacrifice no matter what? What are they? I want you to wrestle with that because, see, the determined person is someone who has clear, unwavering principles that keep them headed in the direction that they want to go and they don't relent. You see, some of us, it's not that we lack discipline and staying with our principles. It's that we haven't quite answered that question yet. We're not even sure what our principles are in the first place. And so if that's you, this week I want you to wrestle with that question. What are my unwavering principles? What are they? I invite you, write that down. Now I'm going to flip on over to chapter 2, the next uh, episode in the Daniel story. So we're in the second year of, of King Nebuchadnezzar's reign. And he begins having these dreams that haunt him. There in verse 1, it says, His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. Now, what you need to know about these different people, about the Chaldeans, uh, the magicians, sorcerers, enchanters, they all represent different religious cultures. The king is not in his right mind. He is not well. He is haunted. He's tormented by his dreams. So much so that he begins playing the religious lottery, trying to get as many people in there as he can. Many religions thinking, okay, I have all of these religions in front of me. Surely one of these gods can give me the answer that I'm looking for and can bring me peace. But here's the catch. The king is not in his right mind. He is not a reasonable man. If somebody came up to you and said, hey, I had this crazy dream. Can you help me with it? Can you tell me what it means? The first thing you're going to ask is, okay, well, so tell me, what, what was the dream about? That's, that's a reasonable request. But the king's not a reasonable man. He says, no, no. I'm not going to tell you the dream. If you really are a wise man, I don't need to tell you the dream. You ought to know already. So just go ahead, tell me what my dream is, and tell me what it means. And if you can't, I'm going to send out a decree declaring that all the wise men everywhere in Babylon are to be killed. There in verse 8, torn from limb to limb. That sounds lovely. The king is not well. He is not in his right mind. So here's Daniel, entrusted as a wise man in the king's court. He hears about the decree. And when the king's guards show up to carry out the sentence, Daniel says there in uh, verse 16, he says, hey, tell you what, set up a time when I can go meet with the king and I'll tell him about his dream. Once again, put yourself in Daniel's shoes. You're a foreigner working as the help 
You have no power, no autonomy, and you've just been asked an unreasonable task to read the king's mind and tell him what it means. What do you do? When crisis hits and takes a potentially tragic turn, what do you turn to? What do you look to for strength? What about Daniel? What does Daniel do? Verse 17. Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. The chips are down. And it looks like Daniel and his buddies are dead men walking. And what do they do? They turn to God. Daniel doubles down on his purpose to serve God in all circumstances, no matter what. And in the moment of crisis, he turns to God. In your notes, number two. In times of crisis, a determined person looks for strength, not for an escape. See, these are the defining moments in a person's life when their true character is revealed. When, when life squeezes you, what comes out? Is, is the depth of your faith in God revealed? Or is the shallowness revealed? What is it that you reach for in these moments of life? When, when crisis hits, when life takes an unexpected turn, what do you grab for first? Do you, do you, do you turn to God? Do you open up the word of God? Do you listen to the voice of God? Or do you reach for this? Or any other substance? Or maybe it's not a substance at all. Maybe it's binging hours upon hours, getting lost in the same TV show or newsfeed. Whatever it is, and I'm not saying all of those things are bad enough themselves. It's not like it's a bad thing to have a moment where you relax and you watch a show or you have a drink. That's perfectly fine. But you know when it becomes a crutch. And when crisis hits, are you looking for the strength to endure or are you looking for an escape? You see, whatever it is we grab a hold of, and these moments of crisis, when the crisis passes and we let go, sometimes it doesn't let go of us. If you know anything at all about this bottle, you know what happens. Whenever you polish this off and you set it down, what's still swimming in your veins. When you spend hours upon hours watching the same type of show, what do you suppose is still running through your mind the moment you turn the TV off? You see, the things that we grab a hold of in times of crisis, they hold on to us even after we let go. But here's the good news. The same thing goes with the voice 
of God. The same thing goes if in those moments of crisis, just like Daniel, we turn to God, we listen for the voice of God, we open up the word of God and we listen and we look for God's voice speaking into us in that time. If in, the cri- in that moment of crisis, that's what we turn to. When the crisis passes, guess what's still reverberating in your mind, in your body, in your spirit? The words of God, the words of hope, the words of strength, the words of healing, the bottle, the voice coming from this, it tells you, it says, hey, you're a failure. You you can't let go of me. You can't get away from me. But the voice from God says, you're not a failure. Look, I haven't given up on you. I created you for a purpose. I began a good work in you, and I'm not done with you. Not yet. So which voice do you want running through you? Every morning, 15 minutes, turn to God, listen, read, be still. Every morning, 15 minutes. And when crisis hits, turning to God, it's going to be a lot more natural thing to do. So I want to flip on over to chapter 6. And this is probably the most familiar part of Daniel. So at this point, Darius is king over the land. And Daniel, he's still a foreigner in the kingdom. But because of his character, he finds himself very high up. And the only person that he has to answer to is the king. So how do you suppose the other commanders, the ones who weren't foreigners, how do you suppose they responded to having Daniel placed over them? Ah, They didn't like it. So what do they do? They set a trap for Daniel. Verse 6. It says, Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. They get the king to sign a decree that says nobody can pray to any god or any king except for Darius for 30 days. Why do they do this? Well, they do it because they know Daniel. They know how consistent Daniel is. They know how determined Daniel is. And they know there's no way Daniel's going to go 30 days without praying to God. They know he won't. So what does Daniel do? Well, he doesn't disappoint. There in verse 10, it says, When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Daniel knows the decree. He knows the consequences, but what does he do? He continues to pray to God with the windows open wide, facing Jerusalem, reminding himself of where he came from, reminding himself of who he belongs to. And he continues to serve God. He doesn't allow the external world to dictate his internal moral compass. Daniel remains faithful. In your sermon notes, number three, a determined person's resolve is stronger than their fear. And because of Daniel's faithfulness, 
he finds himself sealed up in the lion's den. Now, I'm not going to finish the story for you. If you're curious enough, I invite you this week, check out the first six chapters of Daniel, and you'll see how the story ends. You see, I don't think the ending is necessary. I don't think Daniel needed to know. He didn't know how the story was going to end for him. If he, if he did know, you know, wh where's the faith in that? Being determined doesn't mean you know how your story is going to end. That's not the point at all. The point is that you're living your life for a purpose that matters. If you know what your purpose is, I invite you to write it down. I think some of us, we struggle with determination because we haven't yet figured out what our God purpose is. Rick mentioned that at the beginning of all of his Bibles, he'll write down his purpose. And he does that because he has to have something to feed his determination. So the question is, what do you have to feed your determination? Now, if you, if you haven't yet wrestled with, if you don't know yet what your God purpose is, I want to give you something really quick to help you work through this. Just in your notes or on a piece of paper, just draw three circles so that they overlap. And in this first circle, I want you to wrestle with needs. What are the needs that you notice in the world? Now, there's going to be a lot of needs, but there's going to be something specific about the needs that you notice, something about the way God has wired your heart and the things that you're going to notice. What are those needs that you notice? The second thing, in the second circle, consider this. What is your skill set? What are the things that, that make you unique? What are the things that you can do that most others can't? What are they? And then the last thing I want you to consider is how will you glorify God? You wrestle with these three areas, and you lean in to that point where they overlap, and that is where your God purpose is going to be. Now, I don't know who needs to hear this. But one of you today, you have a purpose. You have a dream that God has given you and you're about to give up. Maybe because you're losing the passion that God has given you. Maybe because you're afraid. Maybe, maybe because you, you've started listening to the, to the voice of the world that says you're crazy. It says that's never going to happen. Maybe your fear, it has you trapped in all of those what if questions. What if I fail? What if I get hurt? What if I lose everything? Change your mindset. Change your thinking. Every time you find yourself going to those what if questions, change that, turn that into even if statements. Even if I fail, even if I get hurt, even if I lose everything, even then, just like Daniel, even then, I will serve God in all circumstances, no matter what. You think it's crazy. You think it's impossible. It's a couple of days after the crucifixion. Jesus was dead. The dream was dead. The gospel was dead. This is what the world was saying. And where were the disciples? Where were they? They were hiding. Why? Because they were trapped in all of those what if questions.
The two women, they go to the tomb anyway. Just think, what did those women hear on the way to the tomb? As they're going to the tomb, what are they, what are they hearing from the world? What are you doing? Are you crazy? Look, Jesus is dead. The dream is dead. Why are you going to the tomb? But you see, these women, they weren't trapped in the what if questions. For them, it was even if. Even if this happens, still, we will serve God. And because of their faithfulness, those two women got to preach the most powerful gospel message ever spoken. He lives. This is what determination looks like. If you think the dream is dead that God has given you, if you think all hope is lost, if you're, if you're about to give up, don't quit. The difference between greatness and mediocrity is continuing to show up day after day after day, doing the same thing every day, even when it doesn't make sense. Even when the world says, you, you're crazy, you've lost your mind. Even then, you keep showing up. You keep showing up. We allow the world to speak too much into our dreams, but God says, look, don't worry about what the world says. I designed you for a purpose. The world is counting on you showing up day after day, following the dream that I have given you. Don't stop. Don't quit. If you're worried about your strength, if you feel like you're not good enough, look, Moses stood before God and said, God, you got the wrong guy. Like, I can't do this. And just as God told Moses, he tells each one of us, he says, look, it's not about you. It's not about your strength. It's not about your power. It's not about your ability. I got it. Willing and able. Hey, I've got the able part. I just need you to be willing. And if you'll say yes, if you keep showing up, you and me and the rest of the body, hey, we're going to do some really cool things. It's not your strength. It's the power of God that resides in you. Consider the cross for a minute. What once stood as a symbol of, of shame, of torture, the most vile form of evil, the most horrible way to die. When we look at the cross now, it now stands as a symbol of love, of mercy, of sacrifice, of hope. If God can transform that kind of evil, what do you suppose he can do with us? Church, it's not, it's not our strength. It's not our power. Everything that we've ever done of substance that mattered happened because of the power of God that resides in each one of us. By His Spirit, we live, we move, we have our being. If God created us, if God continues to sustain us, it's His through His Spirit that we will be victorious. It's not your strength. It's not my strength. It's the Spirit of God residing in each one of us. By His Spirit, we rise. By His Spirit, from the ashes of defeat, the same power that brought Jesus back to life resides in each one of us. He's resurrecting you. He's resurrecting me. From all that once was dead is now turning into life. He's resurrecting death into life, hate into love, fear into hope, division into community, enemies into friends. The resurrected King, He's resurrecting me. 
He's resurrecting you, and he's doing it every day. Do you see it? He's resurrecting every one of us. By your spirit I will rise from the ashes of defeat. The resurrected King is resurrecting me. In your name I come alive to declare your victory. people as we can. Have a great week, everyone. See you next time.